book of Ruth in the fourth chapter, we find our scripture reading for this morning. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we find, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy, the, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, Well, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Skip down to uh, verse 13. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you for this, your word. Lord, our prayer this morning is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, these black and white words on a page would be made alive, be drawn deeply into the depths of our heart, so that as we hear these words, we see in them the reflection, the face of your dear Son, the one whom we celebrate this day. Oh, Father, be glorified. And all that is said, all that is thought, all that is done here today, to Christ be the glory. Amen. You may be seated. Is there anything better than a great story? It, it can't be because Hollywood has made a multi-billion dollar industry weaving stories. And most of them are even subpar to the things that you and I hear sitting around the dinner table. I, I had the opportunity to spend Thanksgiving, I'm sure as many of you did, with my family in Polk County. And I've got a grandfather who, by profession, is a citrus grower. 
A secondary occupation could have easily have been as a storyteller. He's got this rich history of growing up in the heartland of Florida, experiencing war, uh, poverty, success, all the drama that has been borne out over the course of some, gosh, I guess 70 decades of life. And as we sit around the, the Thanksgiving table and I listen to him tell stories, I can't help but be drawn in to what he's saying. Not only because of his craft to be able to do this so well, but because of the richness of the experiences that he has had, that he is sharing with me and my family and our generation. A story is a powerful thing. A couple of Christmases ago, I was given a box set of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You know, it was kind of right after the the movie had been released, the last one. And, and somehow, though even as a child I loved to read, I, I, had, I had missed out on this. And so I can't remember if it was my wife or my mother. Someone had, had bought me the books, which I quickly absorbed, because again, I found in them a really rich story. You know, all of the greatest stories seem to contain some of the same elements. There's a peaceful life that's being enjoyed by all. And yet, some problem enters in to this existence. A people are forced into unbearable circumstances. As they worry and fret over what the future holds, they begin to hear whispers. Whispers of a hope. Whispers of a coming king, perhaps. And as the story plays out, that hope is in fact revealed. Evil is vanquished. Life is restored. And they all live happily ever after. Right? During my undergraduate work, I came across a class at a secular university uh, known as called Bible as, as Literature. And I thought I'd kind of maxed out on my religion courses, and so I figured, why not? I need the elective credit. So I took this course from a professor who I, I can't say for certain, but if I was a betting man, probably uh, does not know the Lord, at least in a way that you and I do, in a way in a, that might provide him some means of salvation. But he certainly knew the scriptures, at least from a literary standpoint. And something strange happened in this course. Though being a, a boy who was brought to the church by my mother at age three, raised in the church, had even spent time at a Christian university before transferring to a, to a secular one, I knew the stories. So I thought I knew the scriptures relatively well for a teenage boy. And yet in this course... I began to hear and read and learn about Jesus in a way that was different. Though he did not know the man, my professor revealed the stories of Scripture in such a way as made sense even on a literary basis. You see, what we have here in the pages of this leather binding are some of the most significant 
life-changing stories known to man. In fact, most of the greatest stories, like Lord of the Rings or, or, or uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean or, or uh, even the Chronicles of Narnia to some degree, really play off of the theme that runs throughout the scriptures. You see, all of the greatest stories are about hope and redemption. The problem is Hollywood has no concept about real hope or about real redemption. And so really it's just a marring of what the scriptures are teaching. And yet, as I find myself in this classroom listening to this professor, I begin to connect the dots. Connect the dots from a literary world into a world that existed in my heart about some of these stories that I had known. And the best part, the best part about the stories we find in the scriptures as opposed to those that we see on the screen or we read in the literature section of Barnes and Noble is that ours are true. Is that ours happened. As our beloved pastor loves to say, if, if you had a time machine, you could have gone back and watched it play out. If you had a camera, you could have taken a picture. These things really happened in real time and in real space. And so as we come across stories like we read this morning about Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, these things have real gravitas, real weight, real significance to you and I as we find ourselves seated in our makeshift pews. This is the backdrop, the backdrop that, we, that we find our text this morning. You're familiar with the story, I'm, I assume, uh, though it's certainly not the most common reading for an Advent Sunday. I think that as we begin to trace out some of what the theme of Ruth is, you'll begin to see the parallels that exist in an Advent nature. You know the story. It opens in the first chapter with Naomi. A Jewish woman who was living an otherwise peaceful life until one day tragedy strikes. Her husband struck down, left, leaves her as a widow. A few years later, she loses her two sons. And a life that had been a peaceful, I'm assuming wonderful existence has been left broken and bitter and without hope. Except for one bright spot. From an otherwise unassuming place. One of the wives of her deceased child. Married a Moabite woman. A woman who comes from a different background. A different culture. A different faith understanding. Named Ruth. And Ruth. Comes alongside Naomi. And loves her with a real and genuine love. Ruth decides to stand beside her. She converts to the faith that Naomi shares in the true and living God. And they journey back home together to face what they assume is only going to be a life of bitterness and hardship. In fact, Naomi, as she meets her friends again, says what? Don't, don't call me Naomi. Naomi. Call me Mara, 
Call me bitter. Call me left out and alone. Well, one day as Ruth goes out to the fields to glean some food for her family, she meets this man named Boaz. Boaz, by all accounts, is an upright and honorable man, a man who it turns out is somewhat related to the family that she's been adopted into. And she hears the whispers of hope. The whispers that, you know what, maybe life might be different. Maybe there is a cause for hope in my life. And in a bold move, she goes to Boaz. The threshing floor and Boaz promises that indeed she and her family will be redeemed. It's this concept here that we find called a kinsman redeemer. Talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And in the section of scripture that we read this morning, Boaz indeed fulfills his promise. He marries her. He gives her a son who would later prove to be the grandfather of King David. And they live happily ever after. It's a wonderful story. That that summary does not do it justice. Take time this week. Read the story. And look for this pattern, the story arc, and you'll see it. It, it's, it really is amazing. But it's in this concept of a kinsman redeemer that I think we begin to see parallels of Ruth's story and our own Advent story. The theme of this book though it could be outlined a couple different ways, is most certainly this idea of redemption. We see it in Boaz serving as a kinsman redeemer. And, and really, that is simply this idea of a kinsman redeemer as a, as a uh, provision in the law that states that the closest living relative of a person can not only have the duty but also the responsibility to defend the family's name, and to protect protect their possessions. It could include avenging a family member's death, buying property back that had been sold to pay a debt, paying back, excuse me, paying back, uh, or buying back a person who had been sold into slavery to pay a debt, or marrying the widow of a family member who had been deceased. But in our story, in the story of Ruth, in the story of God's people, the concept of a kinsman redeemer is far more than a literary device. It's far more than a way to prevent an end to a family's bloodline. The story of Boaz's redemption, of Naomi's family, is a foreshadowing of the work that Christ would do in the redemption of his family. The redemption of the church. The moment that we celebrate with the lighting of the first Advent candle. Really though, for us to get this, we have to really understand a right and proper way that we should view the scriptures. I, I, I think I brought it somewhere. Well, now I can't find it. Anyway, I had somewhere 
a funnel. And in this funnel, if you can picture it, a funnel has a, a wide opening that draws down to a narrow point. And if you set this funnel on its side, you begin to get a grasp of the way in which the scriptures begin to relate to you and I. It begins in Genesis 3.15 with a big picture announcement that a coming Redeemer is on the horizon. And as the Old Testament progresses, it draws slowly to a fixed point in which we celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus. All of the Old Testament, as Mike has referred to over the last several weeks in the Minor Prophets, the day of the Lord that would come, the day in which the Redeemer would be announced, the day in which God Almighty would set forth His plan to redeem His people, all of these things draw to a focused point that begins in a manger in Bethlehem with our King Jesus being born in a lowly manger to a parents of little account. And from that point, if we took another funnel, we faced the two ends together so that what you have is kind of an hourglass shape. From that fixed moment, the rest of the scriptures begin to expand on the implications of this 33-year section of time that encapsulates the birth, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That is the focus of the scriptures. It begins in the Old Testament and draws to a point in the work of Christ and then expands out until such time as revelation is no longer necessary because the present and living and reigning King Jesus is made manifest before us. That is the way in which you and I have to begin to understand the Scriptures. It has to begin to be the way in which we read our Old Testament and we see each and every way that points to Jesus. As we read the New Testament, we see each and every way in which the work and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus is expanded in such a way as that it influences the way that you and I live every moment of our life. You know, the, the neatest commentary that I have that expands on this view of the scriptures I actually found in the nursery one day during our nursery duties. My wife and I, as we begin to teach, there's a, there's a little book in there that we read to the kids after we do our lesson that contains all the high points in the biblical story arc. And it's written by, uh, oh, uh, I, I believe it's some relative of Martin Lloyd-Jones because the, the lady's name is something Lloyd-Jones. And the, the fascinating thing about this book is, is that as it traces out each and every story in the Old Testament, the emphasis is that the Redeemer is at work and the Redeemer is coming. I don't know if, you, if you've done nursery duty, it's, it's got a little character picture of Jesus on it. And it, you'll read it, it's very clear. It's actually called Jesus, uh, Jesus is Coming or some, something like that. But uh, find it in there and you'll, you'll begin to see how this section begins to point to the coming of Christ. It is indeed the culmination of all of Scripture. So as we return to our text in Ruth, 
a few things begin to become very clear. The first thing that we see is that Jesus' fingerprints are all over the book of Ruth. His fingerprints are all over the book of Ruth. You saw there in the last little section that I read, as Naomi celebrates the birth of this child, as her friends come alongside, they give this child a name. They name this child Obed, saying that a son has been born to Naomi. And he is indeed the father of Jesse, the father of David. And if you read the last few verses, indeed it gives a genealogy leading up to the birth of David. Because the first place in which we begin to see the fingerprints of Jesus in the book of Ruth is that as the Bible legitimates the kingship of David, it legitimates the coming kingship of Jesus on earth. We, we even read it in uh, uh, one of our responsive readings this morning that as the kingly line begins with David and, and extends down to a Jesus, we find within it a Moabite adopted woman in this family gene line. And as the Old Testament ev- evidence paints a clear path from Ruth to David and from David to Jesus, we see the span of time extending downward. It's the first place we see it. The second place that we begin to see Jesus' fingerprints, we begin to see Boaz as a foreshadowing of what Christ himself would come and do. We, f- we see it in the actual redemption of this family. You have Naomi, a Jew, part of the family tree. And yet we also have Ruth, a Gentile. And in this redemption, this kinsman redemption, you have two families separated by bloodlines, separated by an ancient history, joined together, and in fact redeemed together as one family under the headship of Boaz. It is the same thing that Jesus does on a grand scale hundreds of years later. As he comes, he inaugurates his kingdom, not just a kingdom for the Jews, but a kingdom that includes you and I as well. A kingdom in which we celebrate the birth of our Lord through the adoption that exists under the headship of our King Jesus. And I think a third way that we see the fingerprints of Jesus in this book is in Boaz himself. Naomi and Ruth, by all accounts, are pretty pathetic people. They've been left destitute, marred by the tragedy a widowed husband, the loss of two children, and without a male heir, really cease to have any standing in society. And yet Boaz, in a selfless move, redeems two people who are otherwise helpless. Apart from the intervening love of Boaz, they are outside in the cold. 
Can you hear the Christmas story in this? Can you see the Christmas theme in Ruth? Friends, the parallels are there and they are easy to spot. As Boaz has redeemed this group of people, this family who were otherwise left in the cold, left outside, without hope, without an heir, had been grafted into a new family, a family that was redeemed at a great price, a family that was instituted because of the selfless love of the head of the family, given to a people without hope, without birthright, without a family. We see this theme of Christmas begin to sweep in because the theme of Ruth and the theme of the manger are the same. That a Redeemer is coming. That a Rescuer is is on the way. And that it is not some fictional character riding in on noble steed, but it is indeed the king of the universe. King Jesus. Who in a most unexpected way appears on the scene in the form of a child in a cattle trough, in an out-of-the-way city known as Bethlehem, foretold by the prophets, made manifest at a real point in history. The theme is the same. That a king, that a rescuer, that a hope is coming. So what does all this mean? I mean, it's good history. It's good theology. Maybe it changes the way you read a little bit, but friends, if, if that's it, you know, take a college class. It'll be way better than what I can do. I mean, there's got to be something here that makes a difference to us. There's got to be something here in which we take hope and refuge. Where's the hope for those of us struggling to pay a mortgage? Where's the hope for those of us who are having difficult time finding work? Where is the hope for those of us who have loved ones who as it stands are outside the kingdom? Where's the hope for us in this? I was walking through Kmart yesterday and uh, you know, like the rest of us trying to get some Christmas shopping done. I was walking through Kmart and I saw a sign that I have not seen in a long time. You walk in the door of Kmart and you'll see it if you go there. It says, layaway is here. Layaway. I haven't put something on layaway in years because, you know, we got credit. We don't need layaway. Why wait? We can have it now, you know. Layaway is here. You remember layaway, right? You take an item that you want to purchase. You go to the back. You give them that item. You make a deposit on that item, guaranteeing at some point in the near future you will return to pick up that item, which time the bill is settled. 
the item is redeemed from layaway and you take it home and give to your blessed loved one. You know, Christmas in a lot of ways is like layaway, right? What is the message of Christmas? That there is one who is coming to make a great purchase. The purchase of freedom. Freedom for a people who are in bondage. And the item is picked up. It is taken to the back counter of Calvary. And the deposit is made. In fact, it kind of breaks down here, but it's not just a deposit, but the bill is settled in full right then and there. It is dealt with. And the promise is made that I will come and redeem this item that I have purchased at the right time. Lay away Christmas, the message of the gospel. It finds its home and its rest in our King Jesus. And so if you are part of those who find themselves struggling, struggling on an emotional level, struggling on a financial level, struggling on a spiritual level. Let I'm not good at this, but let me just suggest to you as honestly as I can. We have in our Savior we have in the hope of that lit candle and the others that will join it as the weeks progress. We have in the hope of our Lord a coming rescuer who will rescue a people in desperate need and bondage. And the temptation is is to sit in our chairs, to sit in our pews and to make some assumptions like I'm sure Naomi and Ruth made at their great loss, that I am alone, that I am without hope, that there is no one who understands. I am the only one who stands here in this situation, in this circumstances. Let me suggest to you that that's not the case. That there is a real and risen Lord who has us on layaway, who has purchased our freedom at a great price and who is coming to redeem us to a joyous future in the new heaven and the new earth where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is no discord of soul and spirit to live in eternity with him. Friends, that's Advent. That's Advent that we find in Ruth throughout the whole Old Testament that we find ourselves in, waiting with expectation now that the rescuer is coming and is indeed here and is coming again. Let's pray. Father, even as I stand here and fumble for words to try and paint a picture that is far too glorious for our little hearts to understand. I am reminded, Jesus, that you are sufficient. 
that you alone satisfy the needs that we have, that we feel within us the discord of a broken and fallen world, and at the same time a longing for the story to draw to a conclusion because we are confident that it ends with the Redeemer King redeeming a people that he has loved for eternity in the same way that Boaz redeemed this family that was without hope. Oh Lord, we wait with expectation for you to redeem us as we find ourselves in similar circumstances. Oh Lord, be glorified today because your people are hopeful, because your people see the Advent season as an opportunity to join with one voice and celebrate the coming of our King incarnate. Oh Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Be glorified in our life as we leave and extend the gospel to our friends and relatives that we see every day. It's in your Son and our Savior's name that we pray these things. Amen and amen. We have a closing hymn this morning. Uh, as with gladness of men of old, number 226. Do you stand as we sing these words?